Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. One of my favorite books of all time, besides the Bible, is The Hobbit. Uh, many of you, I'm sure, have read that book or perhaps even seen the movie, although don't bother with the movie, really. It, they, they've just butchered it, uh, sadly. Um, but one of my favorite scenes from The Hobbit is, is early in the story when Gandalf sets up the adventure for Bilbo. Right? You'll remember, Gandalf takes his staff and he, he puts a mark on the hobbit's door for the twelve dwarves, dwarves later on to find. And that mark is the invitation that those dwarves should um, knock on the hobbit's door, his hobbit hole, and there would be a party. And so the opening chapter is about the unexpected party. Right? It is that the, the dwarves show up, Bilbo is taken aback. Each one comes in and has their own adventure as he introduces himself to them. And one by one, 12 dwarves take over this little hobbit hole. They have a party. And at the end of the party, they have this amazing cleanup scene, right? The movie got that part right, actually, the cleanup scene. The dishes are flying and they're singing a song and Bilbo's kind of swirling around trying to figure out what's going on because of this party and the dwarves are taken over and they're finally done and they leave, right? They, they've set the stage for the adventure that's going to happen the next day. The Bilbo goes to sleep and he wakes up the next morning and everything's neat and clean and organized and he sort of Imagines that must have been a dream, only to have Gandalf show up again. And, and in, a, in a huff, he sort of rushes Bilbo in a huff out of his nice little hobbit hole to join the dwarves for this adventure. For Bilbo, everything about his quiet and comfortable life changes because of that unexpected party. And today, we come to another party of sorts. In the story of Joseph and his family, in, in, in many ways, this is the climax of the story. Our sermon series over the past month and a half has been about Joseph, his life, his obedience and his faithfulness. And so today, oddly enough, we're, we're going to hit the pause button a little bit because we have to look back and review where Joseph came from. Because his story is deeply rooted in his past. And I think it points us to some certainties during our own seasons of uncertainty. I want to speak about an unexpected journey, a little bit like Bilbo's unexpected party and an unexpected journey. Two days earlier, he had no idea this was going to happen. I want to speak about an unexpected journey, an unexpected context, and an unexpected relationship. So first, the unexpected journey. By now, in this story of Joseph, we've learned that Jacob has learned the truth about his favorite son, Joseph, being alive. 
We actually didn't read that part last week or this week. But Jacob has discovered, I'll read it for you in just a minute. Jacob has discovered and learned that his son is alive. Not only is he alive, but he's ruling in Egypt. And the brothers, you know, are sent back from Egypt after Jacob reveals himself to his brothers. And they, they're sent back to his father, to Jacob, to take him food and to let him know that even though there's a massive famine going on right now, we have been saved, right? And I'm going to bring a report. The, the brothers are bringing a report back to Jacob to let him know your son is alive. He's in charge and he's ruling in Egypt. Uh, Genesis chapter 45, verse 25 and 28 says this. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father, Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is alive and he is ruler over all of the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when he told him all his words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is alive. I will go and see him before I die. Jacob cannot believe the news and only after seeing the wealth of Egypt to carry him to Egypt does he recover. It's enough, he says. Joseph, my son, is alive and I will go and see him before I die. This is an unbelievable turnaround of events. Previously, you know the story. He was grieved by the apparent death of his dearly beloved son, Joseph, a number of years earlier. His lament when he realizes that Joseph is dead, or he apparently thinks Joseph is dead, is crushing. It's a crushing lament. It comes to us from chapter 37. Let me read it. And he identified the coat, the coat of many colors, right? This amazing robe that, was, that he gave to his beloved son. He identified the coat and says, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn into pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and he put on sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol mourning. Thus his father wept for him. This scene is devastating. And yet, what we find in today's story is unexpected good news, right? After hearing this unbelievable news of Jacob's, uh, uh, Joseph's survival, rather, not only is he survived, he's alive, but he rises to prominence in Egypt, and they pack up all they have, and Jacob starts for Egypt on this unexpected journey. And this is where we enter the story today. Verse 40, uh, chapter 46. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and he came to Beersheba and he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I also will bring you up again again. 
and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. All right, that's the sort of introduction that we have to this, this section, this passage. And there are a couple of key things that I want to uh, hone in on for us to understand. The journey Israel takes starts in Beersheba. Well, this is an important place in the, in the uh, story of Genesis. Beersheba means the well of seven or well of oaths. This is a place where uh, Jacob has previous experience already. But not only Jacob, his father, Isaac, lived there for a time. And his grandfather, Abraham, lived there as well. It's where Abraham made a treaty uh, in chapter 21 with Abimelech. After there was a conflict over water, uh, Abraham dug a well and Abimelech and his people, the Philistines, had some difficulty with Abraham and all that he was. And there was a conflict and they, they finally came to a treaty, an agreement. It's the southernmost city in Israel before the Negev, the desert, right? The southernmost city, right, on the way to Egypt from Israel or from Canaan, the promised land, the last stop, the last water stop is Beersheba. And then it's desert. It's the place where Isaac meets God in a dream. Father of Jacob. It's the original covenant in that initial engagement with Isaac is renewed. Chapter 26 God says to Isaac, fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. This is the place where Isaac is living, also Beersheba, when he sends Jacob away as a a young man to find a wife. After he blesses Jacob and passes on the covenant promise to Jacob. Those covenant promises are confirmed only after Jacob begins the process of and starts his journey. What are the covenant promises? Well, they would be land. That is, they're in Beersheba, the southern edge of Israel, right? And the covenant promise Isaac reminds Jacob of is that all of this land is going to be yours and your descendants. And you're going to have many offspring and you're going to be a blessing. And that through you, Jacob, all the families of earth will be blessed. Genesis 28, 13, when Jacob starts his journey, he leaves Beersheba and he goes toward Haran. And he comes to a place at night and the sun is setting and he takes a rock, a stone, and puts it under his head and he lays down in that place, right? He's near this, uh, this place, Beersheba, and he dreams. And remember the story of the ladders and the angels ascending and descending into heaven. And this is what the Lord does. He stands above this ladder and he says to Jacob, I am the Lord, your, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give you and your offspring. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in your offspring shall all the families of earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you. And will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. 
Then in that scene, Jacob wakes from his sleep and says, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. So Beersheba, this place where Jacob has been living is really important in the the history, the narrative of, of biblical history here in Genesis. It's an important place of meeting between God and his covenant holders. Isaac experiences God's promises at Beersheba. Jacob is reminded of those covenant promises. And this opening section of chapter 46 is instructive for us. Why? I think, first of all, we need to understand that God shows himself. This is the second time that God makes himself known to Jacob in this way. It occurs again only after he starts his journey. And both times, first when he's looking for a wife in chapter 28, and now he's looking for a son, chapter 46. Both times, God presents himself in visions through dreams. God promises that Jacob would see Joseph. And in fact, he says, Joseph will be the last thing that you see when you die because your son Joseph will close your eyes. It's a beautiful promise. Jacob is given from the Lord. What's challenging in this part of the story is that Jacob might have thought that traveling to Egypt at this time was a way of forsaking the covenant promises. The the passage here says as much. It says that he's afraid. He's uncertain. Verse 3, I am the God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. I think Jacob is afraid to go to Egypt because it might be, I think it's true, that he feels stuck between the covenant promises, the tension between the the patriarchal promise of the land and his present necessity and desire to see his son. Jacob has been affirmed by his dad that this covenant promise that God made to me, my father Abraham, and to me, Isaac, is is also your covenant promise. And this land is going to be yours. And you're, you are going to be a great nation. You're going, to be, you're going to grow, right? You're going to be a great blessing. And that had already started to happen. His family was uh, 70 people or so large. And so to leave Beersheba was in some ways, I think, for Jacob to say, I'm doing away with the covenant. I think that's in the back of his mind. He's worried about that. And God kindly and graciously says, I've got you. I've got this. Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you a great nation. And I will go with you. This, for Jacob, is an unexpected journey. Second, let me talk for a little bit about an unexpected context. Where are they going? They're going to Egypt, right? This is not a place where the patriarchs were welcomed. It's not a place where things went well for the the Hebrew people earlier even. They weren't encouraged to be there. Many years earlier, you'll remember, Abraham was forced to leave Egypt. It's a goofy story. Um, Immediately after Genesis chapter 12, when God basically says to Abraham, Abram, he, he 
invites Abram to uh, follow him to the, the promised land and, and gives the initial promise of the, the land and the blessing and the promises and all of those things, right? And Abraham is forced to go to Egypt. Do you remember why he did that? He went to Egypt because there was a famine. Similar echo of a story here. And he's forced to flee from Egypt. There's an awkward set of engagements between Abraham's wife and the Pharaoh. The covenants were made with regard to the promised land, not Egypt. And so the unexpected context that we find ourselves in, in this part of the story, is, is Egypt, right? It's not the promised land. The promised land was one of the key aspects of the covenant, that Abraham and his family would live in Canaan. And so Jacob, being moved unexpectedly in, into a new culture, into a new place, into a new people that speak differently. They have unique customs. They have different beliefs that oppose the, the monotheistic perspective of Jacob's family. Right? E Egypt is a place of mythology and polytheism where, in fact, Pharaoh himself is thought to be a god. And so Egypt is a place of great idolatry as well. It's also a place where cultural racism is alive and well. These that are going on this unexpected journey into this unexpected context are shepherds. And Jacob and his family have been shepherding animals. Egyptians think that shepherds are dirty and worthless people. They're not to be trusted because they've moved around a lot. They don't settle in one place. Well, because they're looking for good pasture for their animals. As opposed to the cultured urban dweller Egyptians, they think that the nomadic hippies are a problem. Uh, I'm reading through this passage, uh, thinking about it, and it was reminded that Culture is a really important aspect of who we are. And Jacob here is moving into a place that's different than his culture. He's profoundly aware of this. Uh, when, a little side story here. When I was offered an interview on campus for my current position here at Grove City College, I, I knew I was coming to a different context than the one that I was currently living in. Uh, we were, my family and I were living in Asheville, North Carolina. It's the land of dreadlocked dreamers. And I had to check with the department chair to make sure my dreadlocks weren't gonna be a deal breaker, <laughs> right? And, and when I asked Dr. Bune about that, we had all the details set up of the interview and I said, hey, Dr. Bune Solgi, I have, I have one last thing I just wanna to mention to you. I wanna just toss this out there and find out how this is gonna go. I've got dreadlocks. Is that going to be a problem? And there was an extended pause before he answered me. And I thought, uh-oh, I think it is going to be a problem, right? He hesitated a long time, but then in the end, well, I'm standing before you today. Right, but 
these cultural challenges, and for us too in the move, right, they've not come without difficulty. Joseph understands the cultural context when he instructs his brothers. Remember, he instructs his brothers when they go to Pharaoh. We've read that today from verse 33. He says, when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. And then Jacob, uh, Joseph says this at the end of that verse. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Jake, Joseph understands the Egyptian culture. He's learned the language. He's dressed like an Egyptian. Remember, his brothers didn't recognize him earlier. He understands the culture and he knows his family background. He knows his brothers are coming and they are going to look like nomadic hippies that hang out with the sheep and the goats that smell bad. You can't trust them. You can never trust somebody with dreadlocks, right? And there's danger in the land of Egypt. Even so, the scripture says everything that Jacob has is moved. Not one thing is left behind. It's not a partial move. Jacob doesn't say, well, I'll move a couple of things or a couple of pieces. No, the entire system uproots from Beersheba and moves into Egypt. Scripture says their little ones and their wives, their livestock, their goods, all Jacob's offspring, his sons and his son's sons, his daughters and his son's daughters. Right? We didn't read the list. There's a couple of breaks in the passage. If you have your Bibles, you can see those breaks that we skipped over because it's a long list of the order of the sons and the wives and, and who's going. It's this genealogical record, really, of what is said here, right? That everybody is moved into Egypt. We didn't read the list, but there are 66 people in all, in addition to those that have already gone in advance. There's nothing left behind when they're entered in an unexpected context of Egypt. And what they find in Egypt is an unexpected relationship. The most unlikely of relationships is formed because of God's hand of guiding and provision for Joseph. All the way back to the time in which he's thrown into the pit by his brothers and sold into slavery and all the difficulty that he has when he's imprisoned and got, gotten out of prison and then imprisoned. This crazy story that we've covered but the entire time we see God's hand guiding and providing up to this moment. And we've seen Joseph's life as a lifeline for his father Jacob and all that he has, his family. The story of Joseph, really, that we've been looking at is unique because the covenant promise that's made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob does not pass on to Joseph. And so Joseph, because he's never given this covenant promise that his father and grandfather and great-grandfather have, is a unique story at the end of Genesis. It's Joseph's faithfulness that allows for his family and for others to be saved during this famine through an unexpected relationship that comes between Joseph 
and the Pharaoh. Throughout this section, Joseph orchestrates events for his family so that everything goes well for them, right? He instructs his brothers how to speak to the Pharaoh. They don't understand the, the Egyptian culture. They don't understand the ways to engage the ruler of the land. And, and so Joseph instructs them. We do get to read that little piece. They, those brothers speak in deferential tones and language, and they use the idea with Pharaoh that they are immigrants. They answer the Pharaoh with the request to live in the land of Goshen, out of the way where the land is fertile, where there's scrub um, covering the land, which is good for the cattle. And it's interesting in the dynamics that once they answer Pharaoh, he doesn't speak back directly to them. He asks them a question, but then he makes up his determination about whether they're going to live in the land of Goshen. And he turns back to Joseph and answers Joseph and says, here's how it's going to go, Joseph. In other words, Joseph is the, the vizier of Egypt. And so he's going to establish, Pharaoh is going to establish his decrees through his chief um, leader, his chief minister. They are permitted to live in Goshen. And they're even given a really cool royal responsibility that is that Pharaoh himself has substantial herd, and so they are made royal stockmen. Okay, so you might be thinking, though, well, hold up a second here. Why are we talking about this important relationship of Joseph and Pharaoh? Isn't the important relationship between Jacob and his son, the long-lost son? Right? What is the greatest of the unexpected relationships, perhaps, that I seem to be avoiding? The one between Joseph and Jacob. Few events in scripture match the emotion-filled intensity of this reunion. Imagine it. Jacob has thought his beloved son was dead. And when they come together, tears are many and words are few. Jacob throws himself upon his father's neck. He knows Joseph is alive He's seen him again. And the only reason for Jacob not wanting to die has been erased. Father and dearly loved son, the favorite from the favorite wife are together. The pain and the grief of that loss are removed. What a sweet reunion as Joseph falls upon his father's neck and weeps tears of joy and gladness. Tears of relief, tears of restoration. It's a beautiful moment. An unbelievable or an unexpected moment even. Now, to make Father Ethan pleased about my sermon, I want to tell you that in 1978, a group called Peaches and Herb came out with a song that perhaps Jacob, Jacob would have sung in his day had they amped music in miserable clothes. It's a song called Reunited. I don't know if you're familiar with that song. Reunited and it feels so good. It's a horrible song. 
I'm sorry, that song really doesn't apply at all to this story. I'm just trying to connect with Father Ethan when he quotes miserable 80s music. (laughs) Nevertheless, the interaction between Pharaoh and Jacob at their introduction by Joseph communicates the depth of loss and suffering that Jacob experienced in his life, even as it had a different tone than the tense interaction between the brothers and Pharaoh, right? So the Jacob, uh, Joseph says to his brothers, here's how you're going to engage with Pharaoh. Here are, here's the way you're going to do it. Follow my instructions. And they do that. And, and that meeting goes off well. They're given a place to live and they're given a responsibility. And then we come to this place in the story where Joseph takes his father in to meet Pharaoh. Whereas Jacob's son had come to Pharaoh requesting favors, here it's interesting that Pharaoh is being done a favor by the old man visiting him. It's Jacob who blesses Pharaoh. In other words, prays for Pharaoh's welfare, both two times, both on his arrival and his departure. Pharaoh simply asks Jacob respectfully, How many years have you lived? Jacob's great age demands respect from the all-powerful ruler of Egypt. Jacob's reply, few and evil have been the days of my life. Now, this is hardly a response expected from a man aged 130, whose son, especially, has risen to be the vizier of Egypt. But there are a poignant comment on Jacob's life. His flight to Mesopotamia, running from his brother. These are the stories of Jacob's life, right? He runs from Mesopotamia from his brother. The story, tragic story of the rape of his daughter. The tragic story and loss of his favorite wife's death. And the tragic story of his favorite son's apparent death as well. And he says, few and evil have been the days of my life. He's now so old and infirm that he must be carried to court and stood before Pharaoh, propped up before Pharaoh. Yet tragic, though his earthly life seemed to have been, he is deferred to by the Pharaoh, who is twice blessed by Jacob. Jacob, who in his youth cheated to obtain blessing. He's not the source of blessing, not just to his family, but to all the families of earth. And because the Pharaoh has acknowledged Jacob's special status by receiving him graciously and honoring his sons, he and his countrymen may expect to find final blessing through Jacob and his descendants. Right? The most immediate fulfillment of this blessing that Jacob gives to the Pharaoh is Joseph. Joseph's rescue of Egypt from the effects of the famine. Remember, if Joseph had not risen to power because he was able to interpret the dreams that Pharaoh had about the seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine, Egypt itself would have been destroyed. And so the fact that Joseph was the one to interpret the dream and save Egypt is in itself a blessing. This story of Jacob and Joseph being reunited is a story, really, of an unexpected party. That 
that little scene where Joseph throws himself upon his father. I mean, can you imagine? He, he can hardly say anything. They're, they're together again, right? What was lost is found, and what was dead is now alive. Jacob, Jacob thought he would die in grief and mourning for his lost son, Joseph, only to see him again because of God's provision and care. God leads Jacob on an unexpected journey to Egypt to see his son. He sets up an unexpected context in which he demonstrates his purposeful provision that sets the stage for Israel to grow and thrive to be a great nation, as he promised to Abraham and Isaac and previously to himself, Jacob. God makes these unexpected relationships possible. So in the end, this is really a story about God's care and provision. So I'm not quite sure exactly what kinds of things you're wrestling with in your heart and mind about the unexpected journey that you're on or the unexpected context in which you find yourself or the unexpected relationships you may have. This year, 2020, seems to suddenly pull the entire world into unexpected times. We have health concerns. There are uncertainties and fear about whether we're going to catch COVID-19 and what will be the consequences of catching it. For some of us, those consequences are, are less significant than for others. We have government concerns. Is anyone going to lead with clarity, compassion, and a clear sense of direction? I'm not sure. There are deeply rooted racial concerns. And there's incredible debate right now about what should or can be done to make things right racially in our country. How do we care for those who have experienced oppression and injustice? There are financial concerns that we're dealing with as well. Will we be able to pay the bills that are before us? Will we be able to find a job or a new job? Or will we be able to hold our current jobs? We have relationship concerns. The year 2020 has an increase in divorce as a result of all of these other things that I've mentioned. Families are coming apart at the seams because of the pressures that are placed upon them. While new relationships are being formed and they're exciting, there was a wedding yesterday. There are more to come, right? But there are other families that are having difficulty and crumbling because of the pressures at hand. These are unexpected times. What is our hope? I think the answer to that question is what we see at the beginning of this passage. In Genesis chapter 46. I think our hope is seeing God. I know that just as Jacob saw God at the beginning of this passage, I think he's available. God is available for us to see as well. And we can see his hand working in the lives of these ancients in this story from Genesis. I think we can see his hand working around us now as well. If we look and listen. Certainly we have our own stories from our lives of God's provision and protection Sometimes it takes 
looking back in our own histories to see God's hand. Joseph was in such a beautiful place to be able to see God's working out the details of what could have been a tragic tragic situation and story. Remember, he says to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And of all the people that can see God's hand working, most especially it's the hand or the eye of Joseph, who's able to, at this point in the story, look back and see all of the pieces that are navigated throughout his life in this story. And by the way, it does not mean that his life has been just a wonderful, rosy existence. He's had some really difficult times. And yet he's still able to see God's hand. And at the end of Jacob's life, if you, if you jump forward to chapter 48, verse 11, Jacob says this to Joseph. It's beautiful. He says, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. This is a blessing for Jacob to not only be able to see his son again, but the blessing is compounded. It's, it's multiplied because he gets to see Jacob's, Joseph's sons. He sees his grandsons. So I invite you today to see what Jacob and Joseph see. God's hand working out the details. I invite you to see what Jacob sees. A son who was lost and thought dead, come back to life. I invite you to see a heavenly father who is orchestrating your life and the details of it, just like Jacob and Joseph, who were faithful in the midst of their difficult circumstances. And I invite you to a faithful, hopeful seeing. And remember what God said to Jacob during his uncertainty. Don't be afraid. For I will go with you. Amen. Real lives, they took your life. They could not.